That's it. Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38. So as we studied last week, we were looking at the life of Joseph. And if you remember with me, Joseph kind of got a bad deal. Uh, Number one, he was the youngest or the second youngest. Number two, he was the favorite. And you wouldn't think that would be a bad deal, except because he was so favored by his father, his brothers hated him. And so because of that hatred they had for him, when the opportunity presented itself, they sold him into slavery, which might sound like the worst case scenario, except their original plan was to kill him. So, I mean, sold into slavery, get killed. I'll take sold into slavery for 5,000, you know. Um, But at the end of the chapter, we find that they had been sold to the Midianites or the sons of the Ishmaelites, And in verse 36, in chapter 37, it says, Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar. We'll find out in chapter 39 how that plays into the story. But he's an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of the guard. So this is just the, the first inklings of him getting, while he's been humiliated, while he's been suffer, he's going to suffer, His suffering and his humiliation will lead to glorification. And so in chapter 38, it seems like we take a quick break from the life of of Joseph. And it makes me wonder why. But as we start chapter 38, we see in verse 1, it says, It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Chira. Because you have to say it in Hebrew. And if you say it in Hebrew, you have to spit, or at least create spittle. Chaira. And so uh, what's interesting is that at the same time that Joseph is being sold into slavery, Judah departs from the group that just sold him, and he goes off to another land, and it seems as though um, he doesn't want to stay with his brothers at the time. So as he departs from his brothers... He visits a certain Adulamite whose name was Chira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and he went into her. So, he about this time, at the same time that Joseph's being sold into slavery, Judah departs from his brethren and he goes to hang out with what I would call a pagan pal. Now, what's interesting about Chira, even though we don't have his uh, biography in front of us, what we do know is that names mean things in the Old Testament. And they mean things now, by the way, but most of them end up being like gift from God, or you know, if you Google someone's name, typically it means something awesome. But what's interesting is that in the Bible, I, I asked this question to my pastor one time, did they name them after they knew how their life landed, and that's how the, the Bible writes it, Or did their parents name them, kind of unbeknownst to them, just pick the name, and maybe like our day, just change the first letter because that's cool, it's original that way. Or do they name them based on what they hope their kids will be like? Well, I think a lot of that plays in, I think it's all of it. That's what his answer was. Like sometimes it's one, sometimes it's another. But God is sovereign. And so sometimes we name our kids with an intention we named Lucy Lucy because it means light. We wanted her to be a light in her generation. 
for Jesus, not for herself. Now she can be one or the other, right? She has that choice. We named Judah praise. I wanted him to be thankful to Jesus. Now he can be thankful for all kinds of other things. But in this case, uh, I don't know if they knew what the name meant or if they did, they had a different intention because the name Chira means dubious. Uh, another way to say dubious, because I had to Google that, I didn't know what it meant, was not to be relied upon. This isn't the guy that you want your kids to be friends with, someone they can't rely upon. Dubious, hesitating, or doubting. So while he is departed from his family that is blessed by God and the descendants of Abraham, he goes to not to be relied upon, or unreliable, you might call him. And so, <clears throat> interestingly enough, James chapter 1, verse 8 says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He says, when you pray, asking for wisdom. He says, don't ask doubting, because when you doubt, you'll be like a wave tossed by the sea, um, or by the, a wave in the sea tossed by the wind. But here, he's paired himself up with an unbeliever in Canaan who is dubious. He's not to be relied upon. And in Psalm chapter 1, interestingly enough, as the book of Psalms begins, it says in verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not, or who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but instead his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. It says there, the person that does this shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. And so all that to be said, uh, in this place, it seems that Judah has put himself in a place where he won't be blessed. He's put himself in a place where he's under the council. Oftentimes we think, it doesn't matter what my friends are like, I won't be affected by them. But I would say to you, that's a lie from the pit of hell. That the people we surround ourselves with, they counsel us. Not because you're sitting down having a meeting with them going, hey, teach me your ways. But because just by living life in front of you, you're going to imitate them because for whatever reason you like what they do, otherwise you would be uncomfortable hanging out with them. And so all that to be said, he is in the council of a dubious, hesitating, doubting person who is, according to James, going to be unstable as all get out. And so verse 2 says, he sees a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Now notice we don't get the name of the woman. That's kind of interesting to me. She's this nameless woman, and it says here that her father's name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. So he marries a Canaanite woman, which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or excuse me, Abraham and Isaac had went to the nth degree to try to make sure that their children did not marry Canaanite women. And of course, that goes back to Gen- beginning of Genesis after the flood, where you have the descendants, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, all of the descendants of Noah. And Shem, the Semites, we might say it Shemites, are the descendants that Abraham and his family come from, who are the blessed line. It says there that uh, blessed be God, the God of, of, of uh, Shem. And then it says also that Ham, a descendant of 
Canaan, or Canaan is a descendant of Ham, is actually cursed. So why would you want your family to, to marry into another family that is, according to the word of God, cursed? And yet that's what he's doing here. He's marrying a cursed family. Now, uh, married a Canaanite woman, she was daughter. And, and notice that as they live in the land of Canaan, Canaanites were rapidly corrupting Israel's family. And, and because they were friends with the world instead of friends with God. James chapter 4, verse 4, it says that friendship with the world is enmity with God, which is just a fancy word to say at war with God. Friendship with the world causes us to be like the world and influenced by the world instead of influenced by our Father. And so here he's making a bad choice, and he's going to lead his family to make bad choices because of that. So from this marriage, verse 3, she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. <clears throat> now, Ur means watchman. I have there for you oldest or double portion, but the idea is that double portion goes to the firstborn son in those families. The second, verse 4, she conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Now, interesting about his name. It means vigorous, physically strong, healthy, full of energy. Now, some of you are, are gearheads and you know the name Onan because you've seen it on the side of a generator. Uh, I googled it this week looking for pictures for the slides and what I found was a bunch of generators. I never knew it was because it's a biblical thing. Onan means full of energy. Who thought? And so, uh, little did I know that when I was working in the shop with my dad as a kid, and we had one of those motorhomes pull in from the 70s, they weren't as sleek as they are now. It was like a box, a huge box. And out from the side, you'd pull out the generator, and we had to work on the thing, and it was an Onan generator. So, now I know why. But then, Sheila, the third, verse 5, she conceived yet again, and bore a son, called his name Shelah. Now, I wrote there, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> son of Judah. Now, I wrote that because I thought I would come up with a name meaning, and I never did. So that's what it says. He's a son of Judah. But at the time that she bore Judah or Shelah into the world, she, they were dwelling in Kazib by this time, in Canaan, marrying Canaanites. And so they were in the plains of Canaan, marrying Canaanites, and producing children. Interestingly enough, as believers, if we're not careful, we will find ourselves in the world and of it instead of what Jesus prayed for his disciples in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verse 9, we have the high priestly prayer of Jesus, and he prays for his disciples these things. He says, I pray for them, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are, unified. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled, speaking of Judas. 
He's speaking of himself as a shepherd because Jesus is the good shepherd. Just like David was a shepherd over sheep, Jesus is the shepherd over his disciples. He says, I've kept them while I've been in the world. And yet there's a problem. He's getting ready to go back to the Father. He says, but now I come to you, verse 13. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. Your word, Psalm 119, is a lamp unto my feet. It is a light unto my path. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. The world will hate you if you are walking with Jesus in your daily life. He says, the world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And he's implying there, and they hate me too. And that's okay. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Notice that. Jesus did not pray that we would be taken out of the world. He says, but that you should keep them from the evil one. The evil one wants to corrupt your family by causing you to be married to those or in business relationship with or to be counseled by the ways of the world that will draw you away from the shepherd. That, that's his desire. That's the, 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 you know, there's the good shepherd and then there's Satan who seeks to rob, kill, and destroy. And so how are we to be kept from this? He says, I don't pray that you're taken out of the world. He left us here to be a light. He left us here to be salt, to hold back wickedness. Verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Therefore, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. He wasn't mincing words there. He, he wasn't saying that your word has truth in it. He was saying your word is the truth. Your word describes me, is what he's praying. Jesus is the truth. We're not looking to worship the word of God. We're looking to know the God of the word. He's revealing his character through it. He says, sanctify them or set them apart for your use. That's what sanctify means. By your truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. And he's going to atone for our sin. He, he's cleansed us of all unrighteousness. But we must confess our sin and repent of it and believe. And that's where the cleansing comes from. And then we become new creations in Christ. No longer of this world. No longer dr driven away by the dissipation of this world, but instead being led by the Spirit. And so back in Genesis, we see uh, they were in the world and becoming of the world rather than remaining separate from the world. And by the way, I don't mean separatist. I don't mean they hole up in their houses and act like everything's fine and avoid the confrontation that will come as being different. What I mean by that is we're called to be engaged in society using our any power that God gives us, whether it's to vote or to engage with non-believers, to be good Christians, to be good citizens of the world, and yet recognizing that our number one citizenship is in heaven. And so, three sons, and these sons obviously are going to eventually be married into other families. Verse 6, So then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, 
and her name was Tamar. So now begins a very exciting part in Scripture that many times people don't spend time on. But what we have here is arranged marriage. And, and because he's chosen a wife for himself from people in Canaan, he's probably going to do the same for his son, right? And so as he's leading, he's leading by example, and he's also leading in decision-making. He took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now, her na- we don't, it doesn't say that she's from Canaan, but her name actually implies that she's from Canaan. Tamar comes from Tamarisk, and it actually means like a palm tree. It's a beautiful name. Except from this passage, I don't know too many Tamars. And so, um, like father, like son, he picks him a wife from the people of the world. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. Wow. So it doesn't say exactly what was wicked about him. It says that he was wicked. That, that the way that he lived in some form or fashion caused there to be the judgment of God. Now, we read this in our Western mindset, and we go, well, that's, just, that's wickedness. To, to murder one of your creations. I thought you were against death. I thought you were against killing. And yet what I want to point out is that many times, there is a a sin that leads to death, 1 John says. And I do believe that many times in mercy, in compassion, God takes the life of a human being because of the wake of destruction that they put in other people's lives. You know, and so with that being said, There are, I guarantee, people that were deeply affected. Your sin, undealt with, and continued to live in a habit of, whether you believe this or not, it causes destruction in the life of those around you. Sin brings forth death. Sin has consequences. And it's not just consequences for you. It's consequences for your siblings, for your parents, for your children and their children, it lays down a habit of destruction that we don't even know until we get to eternity. And so all that said, I think sometimes the Lord, in his mercy, he takes out one individual for the greater good of many. And so all that said, we'll move on. Verse 7 says that Ur died. And in this passage, it says the Lord killed him. Verse 8, And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. Now, what's happening here? Doesn't this seem kind of weird? In our culture, yes, but in, in that culture, it wasn't in the law yet because Deuteronomy had not been written, but it became a law by the hand of God that if a woman was left as a widow, and if she had unmarried if he had unmarried brothers the the one who died the next brother in line would fulfill an obligation to marry her and give her children therefore no longer leaving her a widow untaken care of but instead giving her hopefully a son who would be able to provide for her livelihood and so therefore you wouldn't need a welfare system you wouldn't need a social system to take care of it because your family unit would take care of itself. And so in Deuteronomy, in chapter 25, in verse 5, it lays it out. 
If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears, will succeed the name of his dead brother. And so that son that would be born to him, or to her, would not technically be his heir. It would actually be Ur's heir. And so it's kind of an odd thing. And yet what we see is they're fulfilling an obligation to their family. Now, something else that happened because of this is that when someone would go to marry someone, the brothers would be very interested, by the way, in whether or not she was the type of woman that they would want in their family. Because if something happens to older brother, um, they're stuck. And so, um, obviously, there were provisions where the brother could say, no, I won't do that. But it was a disgrace to do so. Verse 7 says, If the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders. Let's get the whole household involved. And there was a whole ceremony involved with making sure that everybody knew that he chose not to fulfill that obligation. Perhaps they would rename him Chaira and say he's unreliable, right? And so... And there was this whole ceremony where they would, at the gate, hand him a shoe, which is weird. They'd take off his shoe, a shoe and hand it to him, and then they would spit in his face. There you go. So, uh, you know, either way, you're in trouble if you don't do this. The shoe may not be a big deal, unless your brother had stinky feet. So, his wickedness is his disobedience to God's law in this case. But notice here it says that Judah said to Onan, you need to go fulfill this obligation. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. So he fulfilled the obligation in the ways that he wanted to, but not in the ways he did not want to. So it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground lest he should give an heir to his brother. There you go. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. I want to stop here for a minute. I'm not going to talk about it. If you don't know what he means by this passage, look up the words, you figure it out. Don't Google it too much. You'll start getting all kinds of ads you don't want. But all that to say, it's in the Bible, so we'll talk about it just a little bit. This is a, a verse that people like to use to talk about birth control, and how it's wrong. I will submit to you that God has called us to be fruitful and multiply. I will also submit to you that God has created us in the image of himself. And God is a creator, and he's given us the ability to create life in sort of, like he gave us the potential to create life. But I also want you to notice that in creation, on day six, when he had finished his labors, he, he, uh, he ceased creating. And so I think there's wisdom in knowing what you're called to. Now, many people, this is an opinion of mine. Obviously, we only have two kids. And so with, with that being said, there are those that say that this particular passage is teaching that birth control of any sort or fashion 
is sinful or wrong. And I would submit to you that that's not what this passage is about in its context. What this passage is about is fulfilling a family obligation and making sure that widows and orphans are not left destitute. And in this case, the wickedness of Onan is not so much what he did physically, although it is because he did not fully fulfill his obligation. What he did was, he said, sure, I'll take that obligation. I'd love to experience pleasure. I'd love to receive. But he was unwilling to give to her what she needed, which was an heir. Because in that day, she couldn't get a job. She would have children, and then she would be able to keep the house, and they would fulfill the livelihood. And so, all that to be said, in Matthew chapter 22, we get a picture of this. Because the Sadducees had obviously seen this in practice before, or they made up a story. And they came to Jesus and they said, Teacher, Moses told us that if a married man dies and he had no children, then his brother must marry the woman. Of course, their question was, in heaven, who's going to be her husband? But he ends up saying, you don't understand the things of God because in heaven you won't be married or given in marriage. But Jesus quoted this verse, and so it was important here that basically taking care of those who are without descendants is important to God. And so all that said, we continue on. When he went into his brother's wife, this happened. And verse 10 says, The thing which he did displeased the Lord, and therefore the Lord killed him as well. Verse 11. So then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Why don't you remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown? Two down, third one, right? He's got one son left of three. For he said, and this is his reasoning between, behind telling her, remain a widow in your father's house. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now, hopefully he didn't say this to her. You know, why don't you remain a widow until Sheila's old enough, and then you can take him as wife. What's interesting is that... Um, I was thinking about this as I read this passage this morning. Here we have Onan, who is uh, full of energy, able to give someone a family and to take care of them. Yet he doesn't, and he's killed early in life. And now Sheila is going to be withheld from her as a husband. Now, in some ways, I don't blame Judah for this. He doesn't know why these men keep dying. He, He doesn't perhaps think in his theology God would kill them for being wicked. And so he's just looking at it from an earthly perspective going, is she like poisoning them? Is she killing them? Uh, Are they dying because they're married to her? Is she's the, obviously she's the problem. It couldn't be my sons. And so with that being said, um, he withholds his younger son. He says, why don't you go back to your father's house, which by the way, culturally was wrong. She should have stayed under his house, waiting for his son and be taken care of by him. Even if his youngest son was not willing to fulfill the obligation to be basically a surrogate husband, Judah should have taken up that responsibility, not her dad. She was effectively part of Judah's family, especially as a believer. So he had no intentions of giving her back. 
And so verse 12 says, now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted. Judah is shirking his responsibility here. And what it says in verse 12 is that in the process of time, he's not only lost two sons, but now his wife dies. Uh, We don't know her name, the daughter of Shua. She dies, and he's looking for comfort. And it says at that time, um, Judah was comforted, and he went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah. He and his friend, here he is again, unreliable, the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Now, in the Old Testament, there's one other person that went to Timnah. And he's not known for being godly. It's actually Samson. Samson went to Timnah. He saw a woman and he said, give her to me. He was looking for a good time. He was looking to be comforted. Now, he also went up to shear his sheep. When you shear your sheep, you sell the wool. And he's going to be coming back through this place that Tamar is going to place herself along the road. And when he comes back, he's probably going to be full of wine because he's got money in his pocket. And he's also going to be kind of joyful and, and perhaps even looking to be comforted more than just to hang out with the guys. And so Judah, being a fleshly man, is being set up here by his daughter-in-law. So it says there that Tamar is told, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments. And if you lost your husband, if you lost two husbands, you would dress different. You would dress like someone that was a widow so that everyone would know you're in mourning. But for this event, she covers herself with a veil and wraps herself. She sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah. Now, if you were a virgin or a respectful woman, you would never find yourself in this place. And it says here, she, was, she saw that Sheila was grown, and she was not given him as a wife. So when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. So then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come in to you. For he did not know she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? She's playing the part of a harlot. Now, her reasoning is very logical. I don't have any children. And Judah is supposed to give me children in some form or fashion. And now that he's lost his wife, technically, he needs a bride to take care of him. And so he said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. So she said, will you give me a pledge until you send it? I want credit, he says. And she says, Give me something that makes me know that you're going to fulfill your obligation. Otherwise, there's nothing in it for me. So he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your signet cord and your staff. What's interesting about that is a a signet is actually a ring that they would wear. And they would put wax on a document to seal that they were present and that was their signature. And so when they would seal that document, this is basically him signing the bottom line. So to give her his signet ring is to give a blank checkbook with signed checks. Uh, 
So his finances have been turned over to her. And then the cord and the staff spoke of a person's identity. You had a family cord, and you had a staff that you would be held up by, and, and you were recognized as the leader of a family. What's interesting is that Proverbs chapters 5 and 6 basically said that a man that's given over to a harlot reduces himself to a loaf of bread. They will take all you own. You're giving yourself over for a moment of pleasure in order to obtain what? That's it. That's all you get. And what happens is later in life, they always have something against you. If they want to mar your character, they can. The benefit is not worth the cost. And so here he, he, he hears this, and this is a high demand from her, by the way. And it says there that he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So he's getting more than he bargained for. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put back on the garments of her widowhood. And verse 20 says, Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Dulamite. So he's still hanging out with the unreliable friend. He's not seeking comfort from the Lord in his loss. He's going to go shear his sheep and he's going to go lay with a, a maiden. And then Tamar lays a trap for Judah. And she's got all these reasons to do it. And she's going to do it because that's what a Canaanite would do. But she covers her face. Now, I believe that in some ways this is a mark of a prostitute. But I read further, it's not just a sign of a harlot. It's not necessarily even the sign of a harlot. She was just concealing her identity because she knew that Judah, if he knew who she was, wouldn't come into her. But the motive was that Judah had withheld his only son from her. Now, I'm thankful that we can see the gospel a little bit in here. Because Jesus, the Son of God, the only Son of God, was not withheld from us. And we don't need to scheme some way to get a livelihood or provided for. That our Father sent his Son, his only Son, knowing that marriage to him, from our part, would kill him. Judah's worried that he's going to lose his only son that he's got left, and he's not willing to sacrifice that way for Tamar. And yet we, being a Gentile bride, have a father who's provided his only son so that his son would die to provide a livelihood and salvation for us. And I love that. Even in this ridiculous story, even in this jacked up mess, we see Jesus. But then in verse 15 through 18, it says that, that basically Judah's going to be caught and completely unaware of, of the fact that what he's done here. And notice that James chapter 1, verse 12 through 18 says that when sin conceives, it brings forth death. It brings forth shame. It brings forth fruit. Sin has offspring, if you will. And so, verse 20 says, Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend. He's going to pay his due, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. He wants his stuff back. He wants his signet ring. He wants his cord. He wants his staff. He wants all evidence that this ever happened to be gone. And yet, what it says there, 
He asked the men of that place, saying, Where's the harlot who is openly by the roadside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. And so the Adulamite returned to Judah and said, I can't find her. Also, the men of this place said that there was no harlot in that place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself. I I guess I, I have to just give it up, lest we be shamed. If we go back again and start to reveal my identity and that I'm the one trying to find the harlot, it's going to be a little embarrassing. So, let, let, lest we be ashamed, for I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said to her, Bring her out, let her be burned. Now, does anybody else see the irony in this? Now, obviously, he doesn't know that she was the one, right? So he's thinking, all my sin's been concealed. So he's justified his sin, and that's what we do. We justify our sin, and we point out others. But have you ever noticed that your sin and my sin look worse on someone else when we look at them? If I commit sin, I always judge myself based, well, I didn't mean to do, or I had these reasons, and you know, God will forgive me, or whatever. But then someone else comes into your life and you've never dealt with your sin and you've never had victory over your sin. Someone else comes in and they struggle with the same sin and you're that quickly ready to burn them in the fire of judgment. And yet, what we have here is is an opportunity for us to learn grace because while, yes, (laughs) the law called for her to be burned for her sin, that's reality. He was actually correct. But because he hasn't dealt with his own sin, he has no compassion. He has no grace. And so um, here we have an opportunity that he has to out himself. And because he doesn't out himself, he gets outed. Let her be burned, he says. And when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are. She gets out the signet and the, <clears throat> and the cord and the staff. Please determine whose these are. This is the person who has impregnated me. And so Judah sees that he's got, acknowledged them, and said, she's been more righteous than I have. Well, that's a no-brainer right there. She's been more righteous than I have. Because it says there, I did not give her to my son Sheila, and he never knew her again. So she gets the heir she wants. He gets outed for his sinfulness, his lust. And what we find here is that though she disappeared, she didn't completely disappear. Her pregnancy was outside of wedlock. She didn't try to hide it. But then Judah judges her harshly, though he was guilty of the same, And then he says something that's obvious here. She's been more righteous than I because she did this because I would not fulfill the obligation that my family should have. So what we see in all of this is uh, Judah, wicked, right? He's marrying unbelievers. He's uh, teaching his children to do the same. His sons are wicked. We don't even find out a lot of their wickedness, but God kills them. And we don't see that a whole lot in Scripture. He was wicked, therefore God killed him. 
So it seems to me it was pretty bad. And then Tamar has all these wicked plans. Where is there any redemption in this? Well, I showed you already that through this we get one son. Uh, We have a son that's been given to us. But in this we get life. Verse 27. It came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, she didn't just get one son, but she got two. She got a double portion. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, this one came out first. He'd be known as the firstborn. And then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means to burst forth or to break through. Verse 30, afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah, which means sunrise. And so all of this wickedness, all of this scheming, all of this withholding, all of this not taking care of widows, and yet God is still at work despite men's sinfulness. And that's always the case. Man can't do anything to stop God's plans. Now, we can be involved in it or we can rebel against it, but God's still going to be at work. And we see this because if you read in Ruth, in chapter 4, we actually get to see the lineage that comes from Perez. Now, I'm going to take a minute to get there, apparently. But in Ruth, chapter 4, verse 18, it says, This is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nishan. Nishan begot Salmon, which some of you ladies remember from your women's study because Salmon married who? Rahab. And from their union came Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. Now Boaz married who? Ruth. And from them begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. And through the line of David, we have the son of David, the descendant of David that will sit on the throne forever through Solomon to Jesus. And so not only did she beget Perez from the line of Judah, but she got uh, Ruth and Boaz and, and all these descendants leading up to Jesus. She gets to be mentioned very early on in the lineage of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1 verse 3 but even more so in the future Matthew excuse me Revelation chapter 5 as we close <clears throat> Revelation chapter 5 starting in verse 1 there's this whole problem at the end of the age because in the heavenlies the earth And all of mankind has been sold over to the enslavery of sin. And John writes there in Revelation, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Seven signet rings, by the way. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? The idea is who is worthy to redeem mankind and to redeem the earth? Who's worthy to come in and fulfill this 
need for provision for this earth that's been left to shambles. And it says, No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or qualified. No one was able to be the kinsman redeemer like the younger brothers of Ur. So I wept much, John says, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. No one was worthy. No one was willing. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, look at this, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now we hear that phrase and we automatically think of Jesus. But to be the lion from the tribe of Judah means something different to me now. Because for him to call himself the lion of the tribe of Judah, I named my son that because I want from his descendants to be followers of Jesus. But if you look at the stories about Judah, despicable at best. My wife looked at me yesterday as I'm reading this passage to her, and she goes, why did we name him Judah again? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. But what I want to say is that Jesus calls himself the Lion of the tribe of Judah because guess what? God doesn't only use the saintly. Actually, God most of the time uses the corrupt to accomplish his will. Now, corruption is not without consequence. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not condoning sin. Habitual sin, according to God, needs to be repented of because there's a lot less mess to deal with when we'll just repent and walk in faith moving forward. When we're willing and obedient participants in his planet, if God so blessed Judah's line, how much more can he bless you and I if we will forsake our sin and cling to him? If we will leave the world and cleave to him in this life and get rid of the path of destruction we've left behind in the past, he wants to do something new in your life and he's willing. You just have to repent and confess and say, Lord, I've jacked this whole mess up. And I'm reading here, seeing you can do anything with anybody. Count me in. I'm tired of letting my life be ruled by me and me creating so much destruction in my life and in in the life of the people that I love, but I'm making it hard on them. I can do something new, God says. But why is this story in the middle of Joseph? Well, I think it's because there's a contrast. Joseph has a victorious life, even though everybody would give him a pass. His circumstances, frankly, suck. And yet Judah's sinful life and his offspring, despite ideal circumstances, so it doesn't matter where you come from, God can make a flower garden over a cesspool. You just have to be willing. And God's plan to save man is not because of Judah's sin, it's in spite of it. And I can tell you from personal experience, he's able to save from the uttermost those from the guttermost. I've experienced it personally. And so, Father, as we look at the life of Judah, and as we look at his own offspring, and as we look at the consequences of his actions, and then we see you break through his hard heart, we see you break through his sinful circumstances, and we see you bring forth Jesus, we're amazed, Lord. I'm amazed. I'm blown away. 
So if you can do this in the life of Judah, Lord, do it in our lives. Help us, Lord, to no longer try to conceal or cover our shame, but to confess it, to bring it out to light so it can be forgiven and so that you can give us new life, reborn. Jesus said in John chapter 3 that unless a person is born again of the Spirit in water, they will not see the kingdom of heaven. And so, Father, continue the new life you started in us. Be faithful to complete it. Continue to cleanse us of an all unrighteousness, not only positionally, but practically. Work it out in our lives so that others will see the breakthrough, so that others will experience the sunrise. In Jesus' name, amen.